Father, we do praise you this morning and do desire that uh, you be lifted up and that you uh, open your word that we might be illumined by it, understand it, and be able to go away with what you want us to do with it in terms of application. We would desire to, uh, first and foremost, be sensitive to and perhaps even seek out Jewish people as they are the focus of this passage. We would desire that uh, we would be able to have opportunities to share you, maybe just in the way that we live, but even more than that, that we would be able to share your gospel with them. So we just commit our time to you, desiring that uh, we all be filled with your spirit and able to not only minister to one another, but to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name. Well, as I said earlier, I appreciate your prayers while I was gone last week. I was pretty happy with things there, and they seemed to be happy. So the Lord was this morning in uh, our book of Romans. So get back into the passage that we started. We looked at verse 11, and we want to get further into the passage on many of the purposes of God in terms of what he's doing in the world. And I was kind of surprised as I studied this passage, I mean, not the last few days, but when I got into the passage, uh, how broad, I guess you could say, or far-reaching this passage is. And and to me, you know, I've read it, but uh, what I was struck by is how come I didn't notice the significance of this passage. I think it's very far-reaching and gives us a lot of insight. So let's take a look at uh, Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. I'll give you a quick review. Paul writing to a mixed group in the city of Rome that are believers. I stress that aspect. And he's emphasized in chapters 9 through 11, the Jewish contingent of believers and also kind of informing them of the Jewish people that are not believers. The next passage, he's going to focus on the Gentiles, but he's dealing with the believers as well. But before we get into that, just a quick reminder of the context. We're chapters 9 through 11. God is vindicating his righteousness in the way that he's dealing with Jew and Gentile. He has sovereignly dealt with Israel. He's chose them sovereignly in past time, and that Therefore, he is sovereign to do whatever he pleases with them, and he is sovereign to choose whomever whomever he might desire. And because of Israel's rejection of Messiah and unfaithfulness, they have a history of unfaithfulness, they're under discipline and in, in some ways rejected, but that rejection is not a permanent rejection. We saw that in the early part of chapter 11, and in fact, We're looking at a passage that is eventually moving into the restoration and a salvation, a future salvation of all Israel. And when we say all, we're talking about corporately or we're talking about nationally. And obviously from several passages, it will not include every single Jewish person, but corporately they will receive a national salvation. So only a remnant in Israel are believers. So God has not totally abandoned Israel. 
because there are some still in the first century, there always have been, and there will always be a Jewish remnant. So uh, God has not totally abandoned them. And uh, the rest of Israel are hardened. And that's where we looked at several weeks ago. So we saw the hardening of those that have rejected Messiah, beginning in verse 10 or 7 through 10. And that leads us to uh, the chart that I've been showing. The purple or the blue actually includes all of Israel, all of ethnic, all of national Israel. And there's two parts. There's true Israel that starts at the very beginning of chapter 9. They're called the children of God or they're called the children of promise. We could identify them as true Israel, but there's also Gentiles come into play in chapter 9, and God is going to deal with them and bring them in, beginning in verse 24, their first mention in this division. But the passage we've been looking at are described as the chosen in chapter 11, verse 7, and then he also describes and contrast them with the hardened, in other words, the ones that have rejected Messiah. So we have these two components within Israel. Now, within the particular age, beginning at Pentecost to an end date, we would describe it as the rapture. All Jewish people that trust in Jesus Christ are part of the church. But after that, the church, the true church is taken out and during a tribulation period, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get further into the passage, Jewish people will remain Jewish. They will not be a part of the church. And Gentile people will still come into a relationship with God, much like they did in the Old Testament. So that kind of charts the situation and the context. So the question is, is God finished with Israel after you finish chapter 10, you could come to that conclusion. But uh, if you get into chapter 11, the answer is, may it never be or absolutely not. So there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant present. And there is a restoration. And that restoration is yet future. That's the portion we're in. And we're looking at the purposes of Israel's failure. God is going to use their failure for the benefit and for the uh, the riches is one of the words that Paul uses, the riches of the Gentiles. And in fact, the entire world will be enriched as the as a result of Israel's failure. So the purposes of Israel's rejection, 11 and 12, we saw possibilities of the transgression. Those possibilities have impact on Gentiles. So just a quick Review of verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? It's phrased in the Greek language in such a way that it expects a negative answer. And in case you missed it, Paul uh, makes sure that you get it with the next phrase, with a most emphatic statement, may it never be or absolutely not, or perish the thought, however you want to paraphrase that. So they did not stumble. So as, and it's a purpose statement, in other words, for the purpose of them to be totally fallen or totally ruined or totally rejected. But in fact, God is going to use even the stumbling, even the failure 
to accomplish good for those that are called according to his purpose. So we saw that that one of the purposes is that it's not a permanent rejection. I've got a series of different purposes, some of them less important. But the first one that comes out of verse 11 is it's not a permanent rejection. And then he's going to elaborate on the positive purposes, the positive purposes of the transgression. But by their transgression, in other words, as a result of their failure and their rejection, which I think is a rejection of Messiah, that's their transgression. I think that's what he's alluding to. Because of that, or as a result of that, and one of the purposes that God has is that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And we spent most of our time looking at that aspect. In fact, we won't look at these verses again, but we saw even Jesus anticipated a rejection of of Jewish people and a turning to the Gentiles. Remember that parable in chapter 22 that lays out in a little bit of detail the scenario of the first century where the invited guests to the banquet didn't come. They didn't arrive. So God sends out the servants out into the byways and highways to bring in. The implication is is strangers are invited, and that's the Gentiles. And we see this in the early church. In the book of Acts, the gospel goes to Jew first. And when the Jews reject, then it goes out to the Gentiles. We see that a lot in the life of Paul. And then Paul himself, even in uh, 1125 that we have here, speaks of uh, his ministry of going to Jews first and then the Gentiles. And another clear statement is the First Thessalonians 2 passage. I don't remember if we looked it up, but... Uh, I'll let you lift that one up on your own, and we'll move on. So the second purpose is not for Israel's total ruin that they transgressed, but it uh, provides opportunity and a move of God in bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And then there's a third purpose that we can add to our list. The purpose is in bringing Gentiles when Jewish people see God working in them and see evidence, uh, we could say from the New Testament perspective, evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, that should stir something in Jewish people to realize that could be us. We could have had that had we not rejected the Messiah. A yearning and a desire Is there any way that we could experience the same thing that these Gentiles are experiencing? So in that sense, the purpose of saving Gentiles, at least one of them, is to make Jewish people jealous. And one of the applications we drew last time is uh, to kind of search our hearts. Do people in general see in us something that uh, makes them desirous to have what we have. And if not, then uh, perhaps we're not living in the Spirit. But if we're living in the Spirit, then I think God can use that, and particularly to, uh, to draw Jewish people to himself. And unfortunately, the church has failed in large measure historically, in fact, has become in large measure historically anti-Semitic. But that was a purpose of God. Go ahead. 
Uh, on uh, your on your outline, uh, you've got uh, let's see, two C, the purpose of the Gentiles, and then uh, verse eleven. I mean, verse twelve. Is that that's was correct? That well, actually, both verses, but the focus now is going to be purpose for Gentiles in verse twelve, which we'll get to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it starts in verse 11. The possibilities of the transgression includes all of these purposes and the purposes, well, the purposes of the transgression would include the Gentiles there. But now he's going to focus on them. So verse 11, salvation for the Gentiles and jealousy of the Jews, you could include all of that as well. Maybe I need to retitle it, but I've got purpose of the Gentiles, verse 11. Now, if their transgression, and notice he's going to focus on them in verse 12. Now, if their transgression, alluding back to verse 11, he's expanding 11 in verse 12, by the way. So, if their transgression is riches for the world, and notice he speaks broadly. The rejection of Israel, or their transgression, rejection of the Messiah, this is going to enrich the entire world and another history, another product of the church and the church age is whenever the church has had influence, it has always impacted the world, not only with the gospel, but most of the hospitals, early hospitals and relief agencies and missionary endeavors and just the uh, ministering in physical ways to a lost world can be attributed to primarily believers and, and the church itself. So the world has been blessed as a result of Gentile salvation and what God has done through Gentile people. So Israel is set aside, and this is one of the things that I think God has used in a positive way to, to show Jewish people, notice what the Gentiles are doing. They're reaching out, they're blessing, they're blessing the world. There's riches there. So now he's going to expand all of these positive terms. I'll get to a slide with all the negative descriptions of hardened Israel. But in terms of the, the Gentiles, in, uh, in verse 11, we already saw the word salvation, and I think in that context, in its broadest sense, not just justification by faith. Remember, I think in the book of Romans, Paul is distinguishing the uh, initial aspect of salvation. He describes that as justification. And when he uses the word soteria or sozo, the verb, verb form, I think he's broadening the concept that includes not just that initial trust, I spoke on this when we looked at this passage before. But think of it in a broader sense that includes living it out as well. Bringing riches to the world, for example, as we have here in uh, verse 12. So the next verse that we have here, riches, plutas, for those of you that study a little bit of Greek, eleven twelve, we might see that the receiving of the gospel spills over and has all kinds of effects, but we need to keep, and I think what Paul is reminding us, this all comes from, from Israel. 
And what are some of these riches? Well, I think the Abrahamic blessings, the blessings that uh, God promised through Abraham that come as a result of Israel. In other words, God promised a nation through Abraham and that nation as well as Abraham would be a blessing to all other nations. It would also include historically these riches include the the writing of scriptures. So all of the Old Testament and I think eventually the writing of the New Testament as well. The writing of the New Testament was probably entirely by Jewish people. There are some that even believe that Luke had some Jewish roots as well. Luke, some consider him the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, but there's also the possibility that he was also had some Jewish aspects or Jewish blood as well. So these are the riches that come as a result of the gospel having an impact. The whole world is blessed through the Abrahamic blessings. Whole world has access to God's word, God's truth. The whole world has access to Messiah himself. So these are the riches that come from the gospel. And when these riches have an impact on the culture and the world, it should cause within Jewish people, how come we're not the ones that are bringing all these blessings? We are the descendants of Abraham. What happened? What's going on here? So their failure is not only riches for the world, but he reiterates it and makes it even more specific. Their failure is riches for the Gentiles. All of the things that I've just uh, kind of elaborated on here, all of the riches of Messiah, uh, God's word, just the physical blessings of being blessed by those that have an association with God himself. So last time we went through all of these terms, stumbled, chapter 9, verse 32, describing hardened Israel. Israel stumbled. They did not obey, 1016. They were disobedient and obstinate. In fact, the chapter ends with even the prior verses, 19, 20, and 21 there. Disobedient and obstinate were the phrases at the end there. They're hardened in 7 through 10 of chapter 11. Different Greek words here. They stumbled, different word, verse 11. We just looked at that one. They fell. It's not a total falling. Different Greek words, 11, 11. And now we have in 11, transgression. And now failure in verse 12, their failure. So an accumulation of all of these Greek terms describing hardened Israel in contrast to the remnant in contrast to what God is doing in those that are trusting in the Messiah. So a fourth purpose that we can add here is not only salvation to the Gentiles and a hope for an awareness amongst the Jewish people that they've been set aside and that God is using a different group, but also all of the riches that are now made available on a much broader basis and primarily through Gentile believers that are associated with the Lord, with, with the Lord Jesus. So if the transgression brought all of this blessing and riches for their world and their failure, riches for Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So Paul is anticipating 
that this is only a temporary situation. In fact, there's hints, and it's be more explicit as we get further into the passage. There's hints that there's going to be a change. There's going to be a drawing of the nation of Israel to God himself. And he describes it as, in fact, hinting at it, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, all that God intended for the nation of Israel, that is anticipated here. And he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Do you see that? The argument is if God has blessed the world and blessed Gentiles with this kind of riches, how much more would we expect those that he chose initially, those that have the Abrahamic covenant, those that uh, have all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies, how much more will uh, this blessing be evident and how much more will this fulfillment be? So we have another word, and now we're going to have an accumulation in contrast to these glorious terms. And another word in verse 12 is this fulfillment, pleroma. And it has the idea of completion or the idea of bringing to fulfillment, bringing to consummation, bringing to the end product of a purpose. How much more, in other words, anticipating further purposes, further work, a greater plan that is still in the middle of working itself out. Do you see how far reaching this passage is beginning to unfold here? I think God is laying out this grand plan that he has not only for the world, not only for Gentiles, but even the nation of Israel. Yes, they're set apart, for an age, but that age will come to an end and there's going to be a future fulfillment of everything that God has promised. So one of the clearest passages in all of scripture that goes against replacement theology, that goes against even anti-Semitism, is this passage that we're looking at here because it lays out what God is doing in terms of his purposes for Israel. So even Israel's failure, God is going to work for good. And he's going to give priority to the Gentiles. So Paul is going to talk about his ministry, Paul's ministry, 13 and 14. It's almost parenthetical, but it is related. It's not kind of out of the, it's not a rabbit trail, but it's it's kind of building on this idea of jealousy. He's expanding on that because he's going to bring it back when we get to uh, verse 15. So the priority of Paul's ministry, 13 and 14, and uh, it's a priority of Gentile ministry. And we need to look at it together with verse 14. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Notice he's going to focus on them now. Inasmuch then, so there's one sentence, and then uh, the rest of verse 13 goes into verse 14. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, comma. If somehow I might move to jealousy, there it is again, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. So it's related to that last phrase in verse 11. So it all hangs together. Now, I've mentioned several times that when you study scripture, you need to study it sentence by sentence. That's why I don't put verse 13 by itself. 
even though it has one complete sentence, the latter part of verse 13 spills over into verse 14. But let's look at this first phrase, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Now, he's not ignoring the Jewish audience, but he wants to call attention. Okay, this I want to kind of impress upon the Gentile portion of the Christian community in Rome. So he wants to remind them and primarily to call to their attention that their situation is a very special, very unique It's a by grace situation. And later on in the next paragraph, he's going to warn them against uh, becoming arrogant, against thinking that God has set aside Israel forever. So he's already beginning to kind of hint at that beginning in verse 13. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. So he's talking about the nations, ethnos, the Greek word. You could translate it nations. And in some contexts, it's translated that way. In other words, it speaks to those that are other than Jewish. So I give you kind of a perspective here. Notice the tiny little land of Israel. Can anyone see it there? It doesn't even show up on the, on the map, so I got to put an arrow just to kind of give you geographically where it's located. So God is broadening his outreach to the ethnos to the nations and that's who the gospel is to go out now legitimately the word can be translated gentiles as it is here in the new american standard so he's talking to a particular group all of those outside of judaism now he's calling attention inasmuch then and he's reminding them that uh, even though, and he's kind of hint, well, not more than hinted, he's, he's kind of given them the impression, the Gentiles. Paul really has a heart for the Jewish people. I thought he was kind of ministering to us. And he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, this ministry magnifies his ministry. And he's going to explain how that magnification takes place in the following part. So let's just remind ourselves of Paul as an apostle of the Gentiles. Would some of you uh, care to read? And who would like to start by reading Acts 9.15? Anyone there? I could do that. Great. I got it. Go ahead, Steve. Nine. Would somebody, Nine. while Steve's looking at up, somebody else volunteer for 22-21 and someone, maybe a third person, 26? And why don't we look up Galatians 1.16 as well? Any takers? 22? Denise likes to read. How about you, Denise? 22? Is that fine? Yeah, she's, uh, she's busy flipping Bible pages finding it. Okay. Uh, how about who else? David likes to read 26. What is it, right? 26 what? 26, 17, and 18. Okay. Anyone care to jump in and do Galatians 1? We won't do 2, 7 through 9. We'll just do Galatians 1. I have, I have Galatians 1. That's Katie. Katie, great. All right, Steve, Acts 9, 15. Okay, yeah, last week Ray taught on Acts 17 in Houston, but this time we'll read on. Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. Notice both. Now, what is the context of Acts chapter 9? Anyone? And context particularly of 915. It's Saul's conversion. Saul. I'm glad you used the word Saul's conversion. And then he's renamed to Paul. So this is immediately after Paul receives justification by faith, right after he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The miraculous appearance of Christ on the Damascus Road, immediately God commissions him and he's commissioned to the Gentiles. 22, Denise, you got it? 2221? Yes, I do. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, what's the context of chapter 22? It's the Lord Jesus speaking to to now Paul. To Paul. But Paul is relating, and he's giving a defense. Remember, Paul was arrested in chapter 21, and he's giving a defense. He's basically giving his testimony, and he's explaining something of his ministry here in verse 21. Similarly, we have a similar context in chapter 26. Uh, David, you got 17 and 18. 26, 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So we have at least three historical occasions where Paul acknowledges, and in fact, uh, chapter 9, where God actually commissions him, but he acknowledges his commission to the Gentiles. This is his primary ministry, not exclusive, and we see kind of that balance in the Romans passage. Katie, you have Galatians 1.16. Yes. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Oh, one sixteen. Whoops, I'm sorry. <clears throat> okay, skipping ahead. To reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Okay, so... Even in his writing to the Galatians, who were predominantly Gentiles, he lets them know that that's part of his ministry. It's kind of reiterated in chapter 2, 7 through 9. We won't look that up. So the background slide, one of the most Gentile places was Athens. And uh, since I had that photo handy, I thought I'd use it here as well. It's kind of a background slide. It might also remind those of you that went to Israel, remember we visited this temple of Hephaestus near the Agora. Do you remember that? Those of you that were on the trip. Gentile land. So I'm an apostle of, of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. So by ministering to, to Gentiles, he is magnifying his ministry because it's going to go even beyond Gentiles. In fact, that word magnify in the Greek text is a word that some of you may be familiar with, dogza. It's translated magnify here or 
glorify. You could translate it glorify. I glorify my ministry. In other words, my ministry becomes evident or glorious or visible, you might even say. My, my ministry becomes very external such that it is evident and it's magnified as I minister to Gentiles because it's provoking Jews and it's provoking them to jealousy. If you haven't already noticed my alliteration here, purposes of Israel's failure, purposes of Israel's rejection, priority of Paul's ministry, priority to Gentiles and the provoking of Jews, verse 14. So if somehow I might move to jealousy, we already saw that, if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and remember, he's addressing, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as I minister to you, behind my thinking and within my heart is a desire to minister to my fellow countrymen. So his ministry is magnified if somehow he might stimulate within the Jewish or the Gentile community, the believers, to live in such a way that it causes within the Jewish people a provoking within them of jealousy. Somehow I might move them to jealousy, my fellow countrymen. And the, the bottom line is to save some of them. In other words, they might be so desirous that they would overcome their, their, their hatred and their aversion to Gentiles. They might overcome that and actually trust in the Messiah that brought salvation to these Gentiles. So he has a kind of a, a ulterior motive, you might even say in his ministry to Gentiles, or a multi-purpose ministry to them, and his ministry is multiplied or magnified when uh, the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jews, see something in the Gentiles that uh, provokes them to jealousy or desirous, the idea of desirous of what they have. So this is a positive sense, a positive use of the word jealousy there and to save some of them. In other words, that's kind of a bottom line. In other words, a similar purpose of what we've already looked at. And he uses the word sozo here. So he's talking in the broadest sense, save them not only in terms of individual justification by faith, but save them in such a way that it affects the entire nation. In other words, they experience national salvation. This is something that God would desire of the church, that it would uh, stir within the entire community of Israel to bring them into a saving relationship. So all of these glorious terms, the second term, the verb form related to salvation. So we have soteria, the noun form in verse 11, uh, sozo in verse 14, riches, fulfillment, and glory, if you will, in the other verses as well. So we might see a fifth purpose that is beyond the other four that we've already looked at. So not only a stirring amongst Jews to jealousy, but an actual result in salvation of some of them. And there have been Jewish conversions throughout the church age. Now, during the church age, those that believe in Jesus Christ 
after Pentecost are incorporated into the church and they will be raptured along with all of the Gentiles as well. And then God will raise up after he takes out the the church, he will raise up a new group of Jewish people that probably had seeds of the gospel planted within them during the church age, or at least hopefully. So several purposes that God has, starting with even the rejection is not a permanent rejection, but all of these side effects that God has in mind. I said last time God likes to uh, multitask, and Jeff suggested that we ought to say omnitask. And you can see it in God fulfilling it, not only in past time, but he's anticipating a future here. So let's look at verse 15, and if we have time, we'll get into verse 16. We have the prospect of restoration, and now he's going to go back and talk more about Israel. He gave us the priority of his ministry, 13 and 14, amongst the Gentiles, and even that priority has a view to the restoration of the nation of Israel. And now he's going to go back. You might even connect 15. It certainly flows from 14, but you can connect it back all the way to verse 12. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. Now, I think he's he's speaking broadly here. The gospel goes out to the world, to the Gentile world. In fact, the world that includes both Jew and Gentile. And notice he's using the word reconciliation here. This is another word, has the idea of bringing two parties that are hostile to one another, resolving the hostility and bringing them back into a relationship. That's the idea of reconciliation. And if the the world, he's talking about Gentiles now, primarily, but in general, it would include the minority of Jews. If they can be reconciled to God, the latter part, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And we'll look at that in a moment. We have another word, reconciliation. And there's the Greek word in verse 15. So we have all these glorious terms describing the work of God, katalage, katalage. Where do you put the accent on that? I don't remember. I got to accent it there. So the idea of not only salvation, riches, fulfillment, glory or magnification, salvation, now reconciliation, an accumulation of glorious terms. And these are all in contrast to those negative terms that we've added. And in verse 15, we're going to see rejection. Use a different word, apobale, in verse 15, Israel's rejection. So a variety of terms are used here. What will their acceptance, now we have another word, reconciliation. What will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. Now, That last phrase there, it's not totally clear, and there's a huge debate. What might be some of the options? Do some of you want to maybe comment? What do you think he's talking about here? Particularly in this context, what will their acceptance? Now, he's talking about who is the, first of all, answer, who is the there? Who's Jews? Yeah. Remember, he's kind of focusing, talking to the Gentiles, And he's referring to them or their, 
And I think the first part, therefore, if their rejection, in other words, the Jewish rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their, the Jewish the Jewish portion, uh, what will their acceptance be? But it'll result in life from the dead. What is that? What do you think he's referring to there? In this context, I think it's far-reaching. Hey. Go ahead. Is, is that, isn't that... Uh... So I looked this up ahead of time, and it refers back to um, the lost uh, son in one of the gospel or the gospels of the parable of the lost son, right? Well, I think the parable of the lost son. There might be a relationship there, but I think in this context, the commentator, the the majority of the commentators take that phrase "life from the dead." as ultimate and final resurrection. Now, you've already, just by the way I've phrased it here, probably are getting the hint that I think it means something different. Anyone have a suggestion? I don't think he's referring... The phraseology is is a little different here than what Paul uses in other contexts. Somebody was commenting there? In most of the contexts... Could it be the difference between... Go ahead, Connie. (laughs) Sorry, um, the difference between living life by the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Okay, living the Christian life, that's that's a possibility. Could it also mean, you know, spiritual life? The, the two things that both of you just uh, expressed there. In fact, actually the majority of the commentators, I think, take it in, in the sense of resurrection from the dead. And that's the more common way that Paul phrases this idea of resurrection from the dead. In other words, the ultimate resurrection from the dead, which has several components to it. Jim, did you have a comment? Well, it just seems like it's uh, it's uh, synonymous with the reconcil- reconciliation of the world. It's the same concept for them as it is for the world. And I think it goes beyond it, though. I think because of the context and because of what he's going to say following and because he uses the word life there rather than uh, the word resurrection from the dead, I think he's hinting at, uh, at a future time that'll take place after the rapture and not only after the rapture, but after the conversion or the reconciliation of Israel and the world, I think he's hinting at here at, in fact, we have the word acceptance here just to add to our list here. But I think he's talking about a period of what I would describe as a world transformation. And what is he hinting at here or what is he talking about, do you think? I think uh, is, is he referring to what is it uh, the dry bones of Ezekiel thirty? Uh, I think that's the initial part of it. But what is the result of that? It's the salvation of Israel that introduces what and will bring even greater riches to the world. Oh, you're talking about the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, exactly. I think that's what he is referring to here. So <laughs> I. So I think as the gospel goes out, not only does it have 
all of these temporal blessings of the Abrahamic covenant during the church age and the benefit of knowing God's ways and God's word in his scripture and coming into a relationship with Messiah. But I think the gospel has that far-reaching effect when Israel, all of Israel is reconciled, when all of Israel is saved, that is when it's like Israel, and like Jeff says, life from the dead, the, the raising of Israel, the dead dry bones coming to life in order to enjoy the millennial kingdom. So I think that's what he's at least hinting at in uh in that last little phrase there. So this is the impact. This is the purpose is to bring Israel into that saving relationship that results in the millennial kingdom. This is why I said at the very beginning, uh, this passage is so far reaching and interesting. Uh, Unfortunately, we tend to neglect it because it has the entire first century. It has the entire church age. And it even has hints of the tribulation period when Israel, all of Israel shall be saved. But I think it it culminates in the millennial kingdom as well. So God is kind of laying out his purposes for all of humanity, stemming from Israel's rejection, stemming from Israel's rejection of the Messiah. So the last verse here, verse 16 the portions making holy. He's going to use some illustrations and we've run out of time. So let me just introduce it. And this is where we'll start next time. And let me just give you the essence of it. If first, if the first piece of dough is holy, he's using an analogy from uh, the Old Testament. The first fruits were set aside. And when you look at the word holy here, uh, think in terms of uh, the setting aside or the sanctifying The setting aside of a piece sets aside the whole lump. And I'll give you the details, what he's alluding to there. And then also he's using a second illustration that he's going to expand beginning in verse 17. If the root is holy, in other words, if that that the uh, branches come from or the uh, trunk of the tree, if that is set aside or if that is sanctified, you might say, that sets aside the branches as well. So the illustration that he's making here is if God has set aside a remnant of Israel, that means he has not totally rejected all of Israel. They've been set aside. Now they're temporarily cut off, you might say, and he's going to expand that illustration. But that does not mean that it's a total or a permanent cutting off. Because those that are set aside now anticipate the the rest being set uh, being set aside as well, or the branches are too. Does that make sense? We'll come back to that and we'll look at this parable of the olive tree, seventeen through twenty four, or at least we'll start it next time. So we can conclude with the same application. God is absolutely sovereign in all things. And he's bringing about this grand plan that he lays out in this passage. In time, we're in the middle of it. And our part today, as God omnitasks, he's omnitasking, 
Our part is to make Israel jealous of what we have by living out the fruit of the Spirit. Who wants to close for us? Well, why don't we hold off on our closing prayer? And Connie, do you want to introduce yourself? Are you still there? I am. And sure. Hi, I'm Connie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gee, uh, I have... Oh, I'm sorry. I have barking dogs. That's okay. I don't know if you can hear me. (laughs) We can hear you fine. Okay. Um, I was raised Catholic and uh, came to the Lord through uh, his work in Campus Crusade for Christ. I was a freshman, actually a sophomore in college. Um, I was then discipled um, by Campus Crusade, which was a good thing. What college? Um, in college. Which, which one? Uh, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Oh. Um, and um, let me see, ended up out here in New Mexico because um, my then fiance was going to school to, at UNM and he came back. We got married. We moved out here for him to finish school and have never left. <laughs> so that's the, the down and dirty version. And have been here since 1982. Great. And you have two kids. I'm sorry. I can't hear you over my barking dog. <laughs> you have two kids. I have three, actually. Three. Our first, our first little boy went to be with the Lord when he was five months old. Oh, wow. Um, and then I have uh, Peter, who is currently up in Denver as an EMT. Uh, he and his wife, Katie. And then Elizabeth just graduated from Grand Canyon University and is uh, still here at home with me. Great. Yes. Who would like any prayer needs that uh, I'll have somebody close and they can pray for you and uh, close our session? As a matter of fact, yes. I've been experiencing a pain in my right shoulder blade. I think I may have slept funny last night. So if you all could pray for me um, for relief from that, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Anyone? Hey, uh, Ray, this is Karen. Great. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Um, Matthew and Robin are here this morning. Did you want to just say hi to Robin? Oh, yeah. Okay, here she is. Awesome. Howdy. Yeah, Hi. Hi, Ray. <clears throat> Let's see, where is she? I'm looking for her on the... Oh, hang on a second. You don't have your camera on. Um, yes, I can see you guys. I can see you guys. need to go to the top to do the gallery? Oh. We can see you. There they are. <laughs> of course it is. Everybody else can see us, but we can't see you guys. Never mind. Anyways, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Well, I wish I'd known you were there. We would have uh, introduced well, you sooner. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we... Go ahead. And to get up early, we've been on California time. We uh, slept in a little bit, but we got here in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. To, I can't see anybody, but um, great to see you. And um, we've been in the States for about a month now. Our daughter and our grandson have had some seizures. And you might have heard about that from Karen. But um, we are kind of supporting them and encouraging them. <clears throat> great. I think two weeks ago we prayed for you guys. Yes, you did. Thank you. So we appreciate that. So yeah. we're due maybe next week. Who knows? So what's happening with the seizures? They are doing tests and they still haven't um, figured out what the source of it is. Um, but 
Um, they're both on medication at the moment. Susanna's pregnant as well, so they <laughs> have to be. <clears throat> she's on a medication apparently that is safe for her um, and baby, and um, it's make, making her a little bit tired. But it's been um, it's been a joy for us to be with them though, and just be able to spend lots of time with our children. And um, but um, it is still a bit of a mystery. Levi, if you can be proud of Levi, he's two, and he's going to have an MRI on. Wednesday, and he will need to be sedated for that. So that's just um, kind of scary. Praying for him, um, and um, yeah, great. But they're really, um, they're really pressing in and just trusting God. They they want to. They did a, a year um, training program to go on the mission field, and now they're obviously being delayed by this. So just, just trusting God that his his timing is good. Great. Would one of you uh, care to close us today and pray for, we can pray for all of the needs that were mentioned. He kind of went silent there here. May I do that, Ray? May I? May I pray? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Heavenly Father, we rejoice before you. We We thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you indeed are absolutely sovereign in all things. Uh, We thank you that uh, there is nothing that escapes your notice. There is nothing that happens that you have not permissively allowed in our lives. So first of all, I lift up uh, Susanna and her family, uh, Matt and Robin and their family. Lord, we know that the heart's desire was to go on the mission field, but you have a different plan at this time. So we pray for Susanna, for the child she's carrying. We pray for little Levi. Uh, Father, we pray that this family, the extended family and those watching, will see your goodness and your grace being poured out on them in unexplainable ways. So we pray for their hearts to be settled in you, for their hearts to be grateful for what you are doing in them and through them. And Father, I also lift Connie up. I pray for the pain behind her shoulder. Lord, you know what what that is. And so I pray that you will heal that as well. Father, we pray for all of us that we will have eyes to see your working, that we will never doubt your working. We will never say, oh, aren't things terrible? When in actuality, you are bringing all things to fruition through Jesus Christ. May that be the anchor for our hearts, that you are at work and that there is nothing that will, nothing can stop your glorious plans. We are grateful that you have included us in them and we commit this week to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Any closing barks?